When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. Hey, Danny, are you done eating? Yeah, I'm done eating, man. All right. We were recording, <laughs> but Danny was eating a yogurt. And um, I don't Jugger. know. I think one of the worst offenses you can do while recording a podcast is eat something on the other on the other side. What was that? What was that thing that I used to eat? Um, that you used to get so pissed off about uh, when I was uh, when we would record. There was like a thing over the summer that I was just vaping. Like on e- vaping. No, well, vaping, yeah, but um, not not just specifically vaping, but something that I was eating. What was that? I don't know. Was it like almonds or something or nuts? I, I think so. And you were just like, and I would like try to like like mute myself in between and and uh try to act sly but i would always you would always catch it and you would fucking yell at me the entire time yeah so danny used to i used to get mad at danny for two things either eating something while we were podcasting or vaping and (laughs) danny would think i would never hear the vaping when we were actually recording the show i would only (laughs) hear it after like while editing the podcast or after (laughs) listening to it so i would be like, yeah don't worry i'm muting myself when i vape so I'd be like, all right, fine. Like, I don't hear it. So probably the audience doesn't hear it. Then I would listen to the episode. And then I just hear <laughs> this sound. And I was like, <laughs> Danny! I thought you well, weren't going to make the habit. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess to get. Uh, I wasn't getting that mad. I was just like, God damn it. It just made the editing process harder because no you vaping. Yeah, to because you can't see me. the vape on the bar. You can't see their sound waves, really. Right, because it's, like, super low. It's such a subtle noise. I don't know if other people hear that shit. I hear it on other podcasts sometimes, so I guess it's not big of a deal. Yeah. When it's your show, you're, like, hypersensitive to anything that can come in the background. So we know, like, all the things are that aren't, like, perfect about the recording environment. Right. I'm sure a lot of audio snobs listening can are aware of them as well. But yeah. for the most part... You know, I don't know. When I'm listening to someone else, if the audio is not perfect, I don't really give a shit. You know what I mean? It doesn't really bother me. Right. Um, as long as it's not out of a tin can, I'm fine. But, like, with our show, if I hear, like, me adjusting my seat, it sounds like oh, I don't like, yeah. a fart. I'm like, oh, god damn it. I can't even take that shit out. But right. whatever. I guess. Yeah, I, f- I feel exactly the same way. It's like anytime I'm talking, I have to make sure that I'm absolutely still. And then I'm not clicking anything, and then I don't like shift in my chair because then all you hear is like. And dude, when we <laughs> were recording in our old environment, so oh God. I lived. I used to live next to a, a hospital, and Danny used to live next to a bar, right and across the street from a bar uh, on the first floor. Yeah, so we would have. 
So I would have an ambulance passing every single 10 minutes. It'd just be like, and it would just be insane. Like it would just be nonstop. And there were times when we would get so frustrated. Well, I would get so frustrated. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done recording the show. So like, this is, I can't do, I can, I cannot work like this. I guess for me. Yeah. It used to be the, like it. sirens in general, whether like police sirens or ambulance sounds like, uh, or just general street noise was always like kind of part of the show for like the yeah. first like year and a half of, of us doing it. We couldn't even, yeah, we couldn't even adjust to it that we had to be like, ha oh, there's another siren. Ha oh, There's another COVID death. Like that was basically the joke, um, yep. because during COVID, there the emergency. I lived next to the emergency hospital that was put up in place uh, in Central Park. So there's a lot of sirens. Uh, but we both moved, and we're both in quieter places, and we both got better equipment. And slowly but surely, I feel like we're getting to a place where it's like better. <laughs> it sounds semi-professional. I wouldn't say professional. I would say semi-professional. Just not amateur, like, you know, our first year and a half of doing this show. But Every now and again, though, we do uh, record an episode that's, like, the content of it is really great. But for whatever reason, we might have just too much background noise. And, like, when we're processing out that background noise, it just kind of sounds like we're talking out of a tin can. So... You'll still get that every now and again, so please be patient. <laughs> Today may um, be one of them. You never know what the internet has in store for us. Who knows? Um, who knows? But okay, let's okay, let's start. Um, let's get into today's topic. Um, this is I don't even know what part of this. Um, I'm tired of presenting this as a as a multi part series because you know we've been trying to make these episodes stand alone while then being within a larger series of episodes. Uh, something we're probably not capable or qualified of doing uh, perfectly. So um, essentially, we're doing a series on the birth of the Japanese nation state. So looking at how nations are built and looking how uh, nationalism spreads throughout a country. So what makes a nation? And the standard narrative when it comes to the rise of Japanese nationalism is that it was a response from Western encroachment. So in the 19th century, there was a number of incidents that frightened the Japanese ruling class very much. The two major ones being the defeat of China during the Opium Wars and the arrival of Mr. Commodore Perry, who basically demanded that Japan open up their border through gunpoint diplomacy. Gunboat diplomacy. So the old black ships, that's what the story is. So Commodore Perry, they're... Basically, the U.S. government was reading about Japan. They said, hey, you know, Pacific is kind of like our sphere of influence. We might as well, we might as well get into this. There's, Japan hasn't been conquered yet by the other European powers, so why don't we go over there and try to establish some trading relationships? And at this point in history, Japan was like, uh, we have a pretty strict isolation policy. We only trade, we have one little trading outpost with the Dutch and we're not accepting any visitors. And then Commodore that part Perry, was particularly hilarious because they would they would relegate the Dutch to like this very like tippy bottom southernmost like island, uh, and then they wouldn't even let them get off the boat. They'd be like, "All right, just throw us the stuff, and we'll throw you this, the the cash, and that's it." You know, uh, hilarious how, how they did it. Yeah, so they were um, isolationist just at the very least until Matthew Perry came and started launching um, cannons 
with modern ships at the time and the Japanese said, okay, well, this is going to be an issue. We, we're not going to be able to actually fight these fleets and these modern armies with our with what we have right now. With our samurai swords. <laughs> with their samurai swords. They had guns at the time. But, I know. You know I'm, just, I'm, guns I'm, from I'm like overly the... <laughs> simplifying, but that's that's the basic idea. So, in short, the power holders of Japan realized that they had to modernize to avoid being colonized by the rest of the world. So the feudal system that was part of Japan for the past 600 years at this point was dismantled, and missions were sent to... America and European countries to study things like constitutionalism, Western politics, um, modern militaries, healthcare, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, this was for a lot of Japanese. This was this stuff was awesome. Like right. um, I, I remember the story, reading the story about this Japanese doctor. The first time he read a Western anatomy book, he was like, he broke down in tears, crying because he realized what he was practicing was voodoo basically like it was just <laughs> false it was false science once he saw a western uh, anatomy book so they adopt all these good things japan's on this path to moder- to modernity and we have our first nation state with conscription a centralized government and then an education system now i have a thought on this and this is something i'm one of the reasons why we're doing this, this series is not to again i want to just repeat like never listen to this podcast and come away thinking that we're some authoritative like sources or authoritative figures in this space we are definitely not nope <laughs> we do this podcast to just to indulge in our own interest and in, in what we um you know we want to have an excuse to look into these things and study these things and know these things so uh we do this show and a lot of it is in pursuit of ask of, of questions that you know you know, we, we have in mind. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. Do you think that nationalism was a uniquely European phenomenon or did nationalism spread to the rest of the world via diffusion? So via, I know it spread from Europe to the rest of the world. Um, well, I don't think that it's uniquely uh, European right now. Uh because we see nationalism kind of popping up in a bunch of different places, in a bunch of different flavors. And sometimes it pops up in ways that had nothing to do with, you know, the European brand of of nationalism. On the other hand, European nationalism definitely has an impact on a lot of, you know, uh, uh, non-Western states uh, insofar as as it shapes how certain uh, uh, types of nationalism, like Japanese nationalism, in this particular episode that we'll discuss, you know how how they're formed. But as far as like diffusion goes, I'm just not super. Um, I'm not convinced about that just yet. I might change my mind at the end of the episode, but like right now, I'm not super convinced at it because it seems like there's there's a sufficient amount of like organic things that are happening inside of Japan that are, you know, formulating at least the basis for nationalism, right? So I, I can't I can't quite say that I think that specifically Japanese nationalism rose as a as a you know as an offshoot of, of just European nationalism. I'm not sure. What do you think? I'm not sure either. That's the question I'm I'm having trouble answering. 
is was nationalism something that emerged from Europe and spread throughout the rest of the world? So was it a copied a copied and paste type system, or was nationalism did did every you know did every nation develop its own kind of form of nationalism, and they just maybe use European nationalism as a template for their own? I don't know. These are questions that we're trying to uh, come to terms with and answer. But I think a good way place to start is the concept of the imagined community. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that concept, the imagined oh, yeah, totally. community? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is this is actually coined from a political scientist named Benedict Anderson, and and what he says is that. Um, a nation is just an imagined political community. Mm-hmm. He, he basically says a, a nation is imagined because it's not possible for members of a nation to know all the other members of that nation. However, in their minds, they live in some type of uh, community or fraternal community. And you ultimately need this type of fraternal bond between citizens for you to have a nation. So this shared culture links people together, even if they don't have any type of personal personal um, relationship. Now you can tackle this on a micro level, and it, and it makes a little bit more sense. Right. Um, you went to Rutgers, right? Hell yeah, go are you? All right. So, would you say that you're part of the Rutgers community? Yep, I bleed scarlet. You bleed scarlet. Are you? That's what they say. That's what you say. Do you seriously bleed scarlet, or? Well, I mean, everybody bleeds scarlet when you think about it. <laughs> but are yeah. you, you know, like, oh, let's just say you're hiring somebody. Mm-hmm. If they go to Rutgers, will that make you be like, oh, you went to Rutgers? Oh, like, will that give them favor over somebody else? <laughs> no, <laughs> if they're equal, equal candidates. Like, do you? Yeah, have... they're they're all equal in my eyes. I mean, it's it's an easy way to start a conversation with me, though. I will say that. But. There's some type of community, like oh, like you went the Rutgers, I went the Rutgers. You have some shared bond there, of course, hundred okay. percent. Now, did you know every single person at school? Not even close, dude. My graduated with like ten thousand people, and we did it in the stadium. Not even close. <laughs> yeah, so Rutgers, had, we get ten thousand people in your graduating class. That's right, and that was just undergrads. <laughs> I didn't realize how big Rutgers was. Well, they must have 40,000 40, undergrads? Yep, something like that at the time Jesus. that I was in school, yeah. Jesus. So it's impossible for you to have a personal relationship with a um, community that large. Right. So therefore, that, that what bonds you together is this identity that we all went to the same school and, you know, whatever – you know, right. value that to school. Even the schools itself will be like, you know, the Rutgers man is honorable, or they probably won't use that language now. But that <laughs> the the Rutgers that would be more of like a uh, fraternal society, or like the 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 the, uh, the uh, Freemason is a gentleman. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, but no, but I, I hear what you're saying. You're, I, I hear what you're saying. There's, it's like the community of people that I went to school with, you know, we have this shared identity. We all went to Rutgers. We all have a loosely shared experience of going to the same university and, and in many cases living in the same area, uh, and experiencing a lot of the same shared, uh, uh, things like, you know, how we all love fat sandwiches or 
you know, how there's the myth of uh, Rutgers having its own STD or how, you know. Uh, oh, you have your own Rutgers STD myth? Apparent, that's, it's a lie, but that was the myth that was going around uh, at the time. And, and then there's a, oh, there was another one how there was this giant party that used to always happen that was free called Rutgers Fest and they would invite like major like artists to play shows and stuff like that and then my class happened to be the last time they did it because someone got shot in the ass on College Avenue (laughs) and it was like a major riot there was like cars and couches and shit on fire it was absolutely nuts but if you went to school at the same time that I did at Rutgers in New Brunswick you got to experience Rutgers Fest at that time I think it was 2010 Uh, and that was the last one you couldn't have you couldn't have Rutgers Fest anymore because of the, the ridiculous riot uh, that ensued. But that created this, as you say, imagined camaraderie, this imagined community around, you know, uh, among tens of thousands of people that don't really know each other, but they share this like loose thing. And a, a lot of the times, part of it, that community is also comparing against other communities, right? Like we hate Penn State. We just do. The Nittany Lions suck. We don't like them, right? But, uh, you know, it's like the us versus them, you know, like I don't know this Joe Schmo that, you know, is a fucking philosophy, you know, major or something like that. And I don't know, you know, uh, Wendy, whatever, that is a journalism major, but we both go to Rutgers. It's funny that you say that Rutgers, I don't, I want to put a a pin in this, the uh, Rutgers STD at Hofstra University. (laughs) And I didn't go to Hofstra. I went to CW Post in Long Island, but we were Mm -hmm. neighbors with Hofstra. There was um, there was uh, their own. It was called the Hofstra Blue and the Hofstra Red, and like the Hofstra Blue was worse than the Hofstra Red. There was two STDs that were apparently only native to Hofstra University. <laughs> um, but um, another interesting thing is that I went to visit Rutgers one time. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to a friend's. Uh, fraternity house, and someone was murdered like two blocks down. That sounds like from Rutgers. where they were staying. It sounds. Yep. Pretty pretty typical like that night, and I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh, how about that? This is mm-hmm. a horribly dangerous area." Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, you need this identity, and and funny that you bring up Penn State because I find that people from Penn State are like really into being from in Penn State. Do you ever yep. do you know anyone who yeah, went to Penn are. State? Yeah, I do. Uh, I had a, a coworker of mine from one of the first gigs that I got. Um, here in uh, uh, New York City, and he was the uh, he was actually the mascot. He was the Nittany Lion, and he was so full. Of, he was the uh, guy who covered up everything, but at uh, for Joe Paterno. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> uh, he was a good good dude, good dude. Um, but he he also was like very very uh, Penn State, and um, on on that on that particular bit, I don't think we saw eye to eye. I you know it's kind of funny people from Penn State and I've noticed this more with any other school I don't know what they put in the water over there in Happy Valley but they are like a cult <laughs> Penn State we all are honestly are, we all are all it's the more it's, are. it's more pre- I don't give a fuck about my 
my alumni. <laughs> like, I'll be, I'll be serious. Like, I don't give a shit. Well, that's because um, you went to one of the lesser schools. <laughs> I didn't go to a great um, school. I went to a tier two type, tier three, probably college. <laughs> However, but, I mean, like to, to, to expand this out beyond just the, you know, our United States audience, because we do get some commentary about how we get too deeply in the weeds about, you know, American or even, you know, Northeastern uh, uh, um, kind of esoteric ideas. Th- this idea of like university on university, like, uh, um, you know, uh, a kind of rivalry it exists literally everywhere, all over the place. So, you know, just if you're in, you know, England, replace it with like Oxford. If you're, you know, in other other places, re- replace just it with replace it with like the university of your choosing. You know, soccer teams, or exactly, or the like soccer Arsenal teams, the major U. football teams. You know, all over the world. You know, uh, your your particular Bundesliga favorites. In England, you know, wherever you they are, fucking kill you. They, they fucking kill you over soccer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, you you a West Ham fan, you blokes. <laughs> um. Exactly. You know, so so it, it doesn't it the the examples that we are sharing are obviously are are specifically our lived experiences, but you can find these examples all over the place in plenty of different ways of this imagined camaraderie, this imagined community. And nations that don't have the these imagined communities a lot of times don't really succeed. You can use some examples um, of nations that are just divided by a lot of different factors and cultures. Um, Ethiopia is one that comes immediately to mind. Ethiopia is currently in a um, civil crisis where you have um, one of their kind of federal state, one of their states uh, or ethnic states at odds with the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Ethiopia, there's about 84 different. There's more than that. I forget the exact number, but there is a there's um, dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups and cultures and languages that are spoken within within Ethiopia. Right. And the major dominant ethnic groups, um, you know, they dominate different parts of the country. The Tigray were in power for a long time, and now the Amora are more or less in power. Um, and there's a lot of friction between the two and there's, you know, there's basically a war that's been going on up there. Now, one of the reasons why their government system is called ethnic federalism. Mm -hmm. They have a hard, very difficult time forming like a strong, confident, unified nation state because of all of this different, all these different cultures that are in odds with each other. And then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, it creates this since there's still a centralized government that that technically controls the country with these. But these regions have a certain level of autonomy. There's always this fight for control of the centralized government, right. meaning that there is always friction between different ethnic groups there. Mm-hmm. So and it doesn't always it, shake out to be that the people that, you know, are the majority, like the m- most of the people end up in power. And in the example that you said, the Tigray, Tigray are a minority. You know, they, they don't hold uh, uh, as many, you know, like human beings, like population as, as other groups in, in uh, Ethiopia. However, they did hold on to power for quite some time. So it was like a minority rule. And you also see this in the Middle East as well. You have like different political factions that are at odds. And the political factions are in reality are, are or I should change the way I rephrase this. You have different religion, religious factions that are in reality political factions 
that are always kind of pulling for control of the central government, creating a friction in this this, this concept of a unified nation state. So without civic nationalism or without this kind of strong civic unity, it doesn't always lead, it, it, you know, you can copy the Western, you know, the, the Western system of, uh, of nationalism or the, the Western system of nationalizing the country under one culture. But if you don't have that foundation, then, um, you know, you're unable to, you know, you, you it's harder to make a, an actual, an actual successful state. Um, that's kind of what the theory is. I'm not saying that's my belief. I'm just saying that is the, the, uh, kind of like the modern way of looking at, at nationalization or the nationalization process. Now there is a theory called the, it's the call, it's the concept of multiple modernities. And it was first introduced by Shmuel Eisenstadt. And essentially what this implies is that the Western view of modernity doesn't really apply to all societies. Like modernity is very much subjective to a nation's own stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So what it does, what this, what this framework does, it, it, it forces you to adopt the definition of a nation as just a political community with its own personality whose membership is limited rather than a political system that has uh, not only have a limited membership, but also has gone through um, you know, the process of modernization and modernity. Right. Does, that make, does that make sense? Does that make sense to myself? <laughs> like, whenever you say, does that make sense? You're, always okay. saying it to, you're saying it to yourself. Like, did I just make a coherent sentence? I think I did. Like, right? Did that, I think so. Was that coherent? I think so, yeah. Um, I think it was moderately coherent. Now, the question that we're interested in answering is, when does that unique personality develop in Japan? And what was that foundation of Japanese national consciousness? Like, when, when does that go back? Because it's impossible to look at Meiji Japan and just say, oh, man, someone just farted out a nation state like out of nowhere in 40 years. Like, it just happened. Like, right. they were feudal, and then 40 years later, they're a nation state. You can't just form something like that so quickly. There needs to be some level of unity already among the uh, the members of that nation state to actually make something like that happen so successfully. Because we're talking about one of the most successful nation states of all time built. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was built in 40 years, according to the, the uh, contemporary popular western narrative on the japanese nation state right so but i don't necessarily think that's entirely true either because you know nothing just springs up overnight as you say you know uh and i think to 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 answer the question of where is the foundation of this japanese national consciousness coming from i think we have to we might have to recap some of the some of the shit we've talked about on the last couple episodes so we can try and understand it better um so i'll try to do that uh so one of our first episodes we talked about like the early ancient neolithic period where we had you know different types of early humans coming over to japan in uh and over a land bridge and eventually over time uh the land bridge disappears and we start seeing uh you know this kind of tribal uh uh 
tribal leadership popping up all over uh, uh, the main islands of Japan. Um, but by the 500s to maybe the 800s, Japan started formulating its own, uh, I think, what could be the, the proto-Japanese national consciousness. Uh, and they did so by, by looking to their neighbors to try and build something for themselves. And their neighbors that they were looking for weren't particularly Western countries. It was China. Right, so China, Japan at this time was heavily interest, uh, influenced by China. They adopted Chinese systems of government, technology, writing systems, religions. They got a strong centralized government uh, that if, was if led they by. If they would have looked at Western countries at this time, they would have thought that they were barbarians because around the six hundreds, five, seven hundreds. Right. You know, if you looked at Europe, you would be like, "Oh, look, this it's is like a bunch just, of Vikings. <laughs> these are." This is a uh, society that um, is probably on the slope down right now. The, <laughs> yeah. uh, the power structure of the Roman Empire had felt fallen, so right. you would have right. you would have had more of a benefit looking at Eastern systems if you're trying to uh, find political uh, systems that could you know create a court system. What they eventually build, right. And also, I don't think the Anglos or the Saxons or, or any of the Vikings or any of those people had the capacity to like go over this side of the world. So they wouldn't have ever crossed paths anyway. So the, the most... You Come know, on, haven't you seen that Matt Damon movie where he's like... This bullshit. <laughs> where he's uh, some ancient Chinese warrior or something? No. I don't, I don't <laughs> That's know. That's bullshit. I did see that movie. It was entertaining for two hours, but it's a bad movie. It's like a Great Wall movie or something like that. Where the, like great the, the Great Wall starring Matt Total Damon. Bullshit. Anyway, and besides, this is before that point. Anyway, Great Wall hadn't been built, right? And so they're 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 um they're basically adopting all these Chinese systems, which is not European, uh, to build their own um, system, to build their own national identity. That's led by, go figure, a divine emperor, right? Uh, and that's a big departure from their tribal system that they had of like hundreds of tribal lords kind of messing about in their own little corners of Japan. Um, and at the time, they were kind of reaching a state of cultural maturity that they were ready to develop on their own, you know, line. And, and you know, by the fall of the Tang Dynasty, they were basically off doing their own thing, right? They, they were almost completely separate from China and Chinese influence. Um, and I think the greatest sign of this divergence between Japan and China around that time was that uh, Japan started writing. So they started developing their own system of writing. And, and all of the things that we know about early, early, early Japan— uh, we get from the Chinese who wrote it down, who uh, <laughs> they had some funny things to say about them. Uh, but now Japanese people get to write about Japan in their own context with their own words. And I think this might be one of the first places where we start seeing, um, you know, this this national consciousness or at least you know, the formation of a, of a distinctly Japanese history. Um, and, you know, this, this early medieval period saw some pretty big expansion. You know, we see a lot of innovation, a lot of art, but all of it wasn't positive. Uh, there was a lot of internal struggle. The majority of the common people suffered greatly under the Japanese ruling class, in particular, uh, poverty, famine, overtaxation. These were huge, huge things uh, that really burdened, um, you know, the, the common Japanese person. And obviously this caused a lot of strife and, and migration, frankly. Uh, among the peasant class, and a lot of them moved to more tax-friendly, privately owned estates. But even then, they were getting robbed blind by those landowners, so they kind of got the shit end of the stick for a lot of things. But this migration from state-owned uh, land to, uh, uh, well, the state-owned land would be taxable, uh, and 
moving from state-owned land to private-owned land, which was not taxable, was really the beginning of the decline of the court system that was set up at the time, and the rise of the and the decline of the power, the central imperial authority's power. Right. So we went from tribal to central imperial authority, and then it declines and breaks. Right. And then this period here becomes known as the Heian period. And what's important to know about the Heian period, which is about 800 to about 1200, uh, we see the growth uh, and the and the ultimate decline of the court system and the growth and the strength of the private land ownership. And by the 10th century, we're already starting to see the practice of public land allotment, which was a practice that they had where the government would give you mon- uh, uh, pieces of land and then tax you for it. Um, uh, Basically, that was done because uh, they ran out of land to give out. Uh, and uh, we started seeing new land being cleared out by private ownership that was untaxed. And this increased you know, uh, the power of private landowners. Those private landowners needed to build their own private security systems to protect their shit, their interests. So this rapidly expanded the samurai class. And specifically in the last episode, we, we uh, took at a look at this over-romanticized idea of the samurai as this, like, Far East equivalent of the chivalrous, like, English knights, which, you know, if you go and listen to that, we, you know, we, we make a lot of interesting cases that this is probably not true, you know, or at least it, it was a uh, uh, something that was uh, an idea that was written for Western audiences specifically. Um, but, you know, the, the reality of the samurai was actually that they were kind of a mercenary force. Uh, they were a tool uh, that was used to protect and promote a Japanese domestic geopolitical interest. This broke down again to the, centra- uh, the, the centralization of power and kind of brings us to this Sengoku period, which is super fascinating. I think is probably the best way for us to look at uh, you know, what, how the, the formation of the Japanese national consciousness really kicks in. Well, let me, let me jump in. So this you know how china had a warring we did an episode on this um right probably about a month and a half ago on china's warring states period and how it, mm-hmm. it unified so two thousand years ago there was a warring two twenty five hundred years ago or so there was a i'm bad at math um there was a warring states period in china where all the different right. um kingdoms were fighting and they were you know basically fighting for hegemony in, in mainland asia um japan was going through this same period like right at this time so this was this is their warring states period and um sengoku 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 it's like goku the dragon ball z character correct sengoku um i think it literally means civil war right yep it means the age well the sengoku jidai which is the full version is the age of the civil war i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So it's essentially a period when Japan is decentralized and then feudal states are fighting with one another, another you know, hashtag Age of Samurai. Um, but I think it's important to note that there is still an emperor at this time. There is still, um, you know, an emperor that these warlords were pledging, I guess, a ceremonial allegiance to, but this emperor only had a symbolic role. Um, they would, they would, um, elect the shogun, but like that shogun was already predetermined. It was like a ceremonial thing. And Mm -hmm. since the 13th century, Excuse me. I'm sorry. I just <clears throat> burped. I didn't mean to do it in the microphone. Um, since the 13th century, Japan was dominated by you know these shogunates. You know these shogunates who were warlords who were fight. You know who would have their own uh, these different feudal rivalries. I saw these this really funny meme, and uh, you know last episode we went over like the myth of the samurai and how. Bushido was used as a t- tool, more so um, as a modern nation-building tool uh, right. to promote kind of martial qualities and um, among the uh, you know Japanese civilian class. Right. Um, I saw this really funny meme of a samurai um, looking at like another samurai, and he was like. Um, my master called me a monkey, so I'm switching to your fat to your clan. <laughs> like reality was, and I guess you have to see the meme. Um, but I guess things get very violent um, around the 15th century or so when you know full scale wars really start to break out, and not only is there, are there a lot of wars going on but there's a lot of natural disasters in this time period as well so there's earthquakes um a lot of people are in poverty and uh, a lot of these economic factors lead to very a very violent period in japan's history right and and i think this this period really starts off with uh what's called the onin war and that's in like 1467 and it it involves thereafter three separate but equally transformative unifications and it 
The ending is not super clear. It really just depends on who you're asking. I think most people would probably put it at the Battle of Sekigahara, but also the Siege of Osaka could be an ending uh, that is uh, uh, relevant. But basically, uh, when we this is the period between um, the, the the feudal system and the Edo period, which is ruled by the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, so just want to briefly show and talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of the elements of you know Japanese nation building get created in this period and then some of it gets undone and recreated um, and it kind of flip-flops and it ebbs and flows and, and not all of it is distinctly European but some of it is so I think it might be helpful to it might be helpful to, to talk talk about this Onin war the Onin war was uh, uh, it was a civil war it lasted 10 years started as a fight uh, about who was going to replace the the shogun the shogun was a uh, yoshimasa uh dude had no heir at the time and so yoshimasa convinced his little brother yoshimi to stop being a monk so that he can name him as the heir but then later he ends up having a son of his own and that obviously caused some problems so basically it becomes it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of the a lot of the like final straws when it comes to different governments in Japan it always comes to some type of succession pro, uh, crisis. Yep, succession issues are 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 big and I, I maybe we can say definitively that you know succession rights are part of the national identity of Japan, <laughs> right? Or fights about it. You're no longer my son. Um <laughs> I disown you. I disown you. Um, but yeah, the court system kind of dematerialized over a succession crisis over um, different families trying to marry into the empire, the emperor's family for That's right. different status reasons. But That's eventually, right. that kind of led to a cycle where um, it, it became kind of like taboo. Like once someone tried to encroach, and uh, you know, the whole point was you know you had the holy emperor. And then you had, you you would marry your daughter. No, you would marry a son into a, a daughter. Therefore, you know you'd have that, you'd have the family surrounded by your own people. Right, and and I think this is not probably probably not ultra unique to Japan. Uh, I think a lot of um, like hegemonies and uh, all over the world are are built on on somewhat incestuous you know marriages but also like marriages of political convenience That's well look at world war one yep. everyone's related yep basically all the monarchs at that time are you can find family photos of um you can find family photos of like kaiser wilhelm and and uh, the monarchy in england like they're all cousins with each other yep yep that's true Anyway, back to the Onin War. Um, so we were talking about uh, Yoshimasa. So Yoshimasa, he he didn't have a heir. He you know, convinced his little brother, who was a monk, to stop being a monk. And then he ends up having a kid, which was a problem again. Uh, and basically, it became a fight between Yoshimasa's little brother, the monk, and the baby mama, whose name was Tomiko, about who gets to be shogun. Uh, it's this really juicy story, honestly, but l like we were saying, this kind of happens all the time, all across history, especially Japanese history. All right, so baby mama Tomiko, she got together some powerful leaders of samurai clans to fight uh, with her and on behalf of her um, her son to be the heir, uh, while the 
little monk bro, Yoshimi. He wasn't little. He was just younger. He was an adult. Uh, Yoshimi had ties to the establishment forces um, uh, of the Hosokawa clan, who was a vassal state of, of, um, uh, of the shogun, Yoshimasa. And so baby mama, uh, they, they, they broke into a full-out war, like crazy 10-year-long war. And instead of it, you know, naming a victor either the, the, the new baby or the younger brother monk, it turned into whoever's leader of whichever daimyo or warlord clan that was fighting in this civil war, whoever won, they got to be shogun. So it like started with these two people and then it was just like, all right, fuck you guys. Whoever's, whoever wins the battle is, is the ruler. And so the actual line of succession here is super complicated and there's like a lot of names and there's a lot of coups and things like that. So I'm not going to go into those specifics. It'll be boring. What you need to know is that by the end of it, the guy that ends up on top is named Sumitomo, excuse me, Sumimoto. Uh, But he wasn't actually a real like ruler. He was a puppet to one of the warlords, one of the daimyo that fought for him. And then this highlights the whole Sengoku period's themes of there's a battle and then they set up a puppet government and then there's some more feudal lords who struggle to win control over that puppet government and then they break it again and then they set up a new puppet government and then it goes on and on at least three times. It's kind of funny that, you know, you mentioned coups. There's a lot of coups. That is something that you can see as something that is part of Japanese national identity. Mm -hmm. Coups and assassinations. What Japan was called in the 1920s, what they were referred to as a government by assassination because there <laughs> yep. were so many coups going on. Um, and there are some wild ones. Like, I don't want to get it. We're going to get too off track, but there is a coup against the prime minister of Japan. And I believe in 1920, I might be getting this year wrong. It's called the May 4th incident mm-hmm. where there's literally a fucking coup with samurai swords like chopping government officials' heads off and things like that. Like it's nice. out of a movie when you read about it. We'll get nice. to that in another episode. But. For sure. For sure. Well, here's, here's a guy who uh, was assassinated. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, this is one of the, probably one of the three biggest dudes during the uh, Sengoku period. His name is Oda Nobunaga. The Netflix show. Yep. The Netflix show starts with this guy. And and uh, for good reason, though. Which you wouldn't recommend, Right. Um, it's not very good. If you if you like Japanese history, I think you'll love it. I think you'll actually love it. You'll probably cringe at some of the ways that they overplay people's characters to make it more entertaining, or how they focus on little shit that wasn't that that big. Um, but you know, it's cool. It's cool. That's all I have. To it's say a show. It. It's a show. It's cool. <laughs> it sounds like you're referring to like a girl you're not really into. Yeah, she's cool. <laughs> I mean, like, She's I got cool. a couple episodes in, and I was just like, all right, you know. <laughs> like, I already knew all of this. It's it's neat to look at it, you know? Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Anyway, they, the they, so this oh, this sorry. dude, Oda Nobunaga, he's, they started with him for a reason, because he is probably the juiciest of all three of these characters, in my opinion. Like, he has the, the craziest story. And um, I think... I'll just tell you a story in like the, the short version. So if you're, if you're trying to watch the Netflix show, maybe skip ahead like, you know, two minutes. Um, so this dude, Oda Nobunaga, I'm just going to call him Nobunaga. Um, he was his father's legitimate heir, uh, but the rest of his clan, the Oda clan, didn't really like him because he was reckless and 
uninterested. He was kind of a dick, honestly. Um, and to highlight this story, apparently he came to his father's funeral like drunk and started throwing ashes like all over the altar. That part is actually in history, but it was pretty interesting to see it in the in the Netflix representation. It was, it was pretty spot on, in my opinion. But, you know, the fact that, that this dude, Nobunaga, became, becomes the head of the Oda clan basically pisses off a lot of people in, in the Oda clan because a lot of them actually wanted his little brother to be in charge. I think his name is Nobutada. I, I could be wrong about that one. Um, they all have very similar sounding names. Um, but they wanted him to be uh, the heir or the, the leader because he was way more level-headed. Like, he was like the good the good child, the golden child. But, you know, again, line of succession, Nobunaga was the oldest, so he was in charge. And so this whole story puts Nobunaga in conflict with his powerful uncle, uh, who was uh, basically the lord of a, of, of a section of the Oda clan uh, and many of the other clansmen that they had. Long story short, uh, uh, Oda Nobunaga ends up on top um, and, you know, cements his rule in the Oda clan. This is where things start getting interesting for Nobunaga. So a larger neighboring clan led by a guy named Imagawa, he decided to whip up this giant force uh, to march over to Kyoto to crush the weak shogunate. Remember, I was telling you how, you know, the, the shogunate was just a puppet government and all of these feudal uh, lords were trying to basically dominate and do coups so that they can install their own puppet governments. And so this guy, Imagawa, wants to go do that. But in order to do that, he has to march through Oda territory. And Nobunaga was inhabitant. This dude, instead of bending the knee, this crazy motherfucker decides to preemptively strike him, even though I think the, the numbers were like, it was like a 25,000-man force for Imagawa and like maybe 3,000 for Oda Nobunaga. It was like way, way off balance. But he was like, you know what? The way to win is to preemptively strike. And he did this crazy thing at uh, an interesting battle called the Battle of uh, Oka, Okahazama. So he set up all these dummy soldiers to make them look like like their his army is bigger. Like he put like flags and they were like made of straw and shit like that. And he put them off in the distance to make his like forces look big, bigger, which is hilarious. And then he takes his smaller uh, uh, like regiment, flanks the enemy forces, and then at night he goes in like right after a thunderstorm and basically murders everybody like how George Washington did to the Hessians on Christmas when he crossed the Delaware River. He basically did that. To I was going to say that that's like a scene from the movie The Patriot with mm-hmm. Mel Gibson. You know mm-hmm. that scene where they act like they have uh, British officers and they do a prisoner swap and then they yep. come and they're all straw men. Right, and then they just murder a shit out of people. Yeah, yeah that's well, that's what happened. Well, he didn't murder everyone in their army, but he definitely cut the head off of their general, which basically ended the battle. Which leads me to a, a side tangent. Have you ever played Dynasty Warriors, or more specifically for this, Samurai Warriors? No, I have not. I've actually, no, I don't think I ever have. Um, oh, those games are so much fun. I used to play them all the time. And, and you could sit there and like just beat up on all of the you know, random like forces. But what I used to like to do is speed run through it and just run directly to the general. Cause if you killed the general, you know, you, you win. So I would just like bypass everybody and just go right for the general. <laughs> and that's basically what Nobunaga Oda did. And so 
he he basically sparks this camp this this solidified him as like a like a regional power right like how did this little tiny how did this little tiny guy who had maybe 3000 soldiers beat up on Imagawa's forces who had way more than him right who was much more experienced and they were on their way to just go like redo the government in Japan you know um how did he do this this is actually kind of a microcosm dude it's a little bit microcosm of like how the Japanese beat the, you know, the Chinese in the Sino-Japanese uh, uh, War or how they beat the Russians in the uh, uh, Japanese-Russian War, right? The Russo-Japanese War. He did, he's like the progenitor to that because it was like a little microcosm of that. He was able to figure it out. And I think well, the reason why he was able to do this and, and how he sparked this campaign of conquest because he he's like all high on his horse now. He's like, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to go beat everybody up now. What's interesting about Nobunaga is that he has very, very forward-thinking ideas and ideas about how to set up his his government and his rule. Most notably, what won him battles was that, and, and especially against like forces that were bigger than his or more experienced than his, was the fact that he had a propensity to adopt new technology like guns. Other uh, clans had guns too, but he loved guns. He bought so many guns from the Portuguese and he would start arming and training regular peasant soldiers on how to use guns. And, and it was incredibly effective. Um, and yeah, you think (laughs) (laughs) it was incredibly effective. The thing at the time is like, you know, there there was this like ruling samurai class that, that had this like monopoly of violence. Right. And Oda Nobunaga was like, nah, I'm going to give guns to the, to the rice farmer. (laughs) And that's how we're going to win. You know, so it's, it's a way, super it's interesting, a way easier, very progressive. It's a way easier way to conduct war, I would say, is to just um, upgrade and just create an actual standing army because that's yep. what he did essentially. Instead of instead of um, that monopoly of, of violence being enforced solely by the an aristocratic hereditary class, now mm-hmm. finally you're giving peasants guns and peasants the ability to. Um, Pull a trigger, trigger, and make boomstick um, go. Take boom. away, basically, um, equal. You know, be more effective than years and years of sword training and the most expensive armor in the world. Like now, That's right. now that is defunct because there are guns and bullets. Unfortunately for you, pierce steel armor. Right, and 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 what's interesting about that is also had the the effect of creating more loyalty among his people for Oda Nobunaga because now it's like he's not just circle jerking the samurai class or the aristocrats he's saying like no we're all in this together like you know here's a gun let's fight for our land and this was again a microcosm of of like this national identity because he formed this identity among his clan and among the clans that he integrated into his clans of like even the even the rice farmers have a stake in it you know, so there's more cohesion, more more of an identity, like a shared experience, kind of like going to the same university. You know, um, that's starting to happen right here. And, and some other things that he did, he, he fucking built uh, iron plated warships, and he industrialized the production of artillery, of artillery and and, and other ammunition. Um, but outside of just military shit, military policy, there was a lot of other policies that made Nobunaga really great. So he instituted a lot of free trade policies. Um, He broke up trade monopolies. 
And most importantly, I think he set up free markets to boost Japan's economy. So as he starts, you know, uh, widening his control, he's setting up a f- like literally a free market. If it wasn't for the fact that he's like a <laughs> like a sovereign ruler, uh, you might think that these are kind of libertarian policies that he he put into place. You know, because he knew that the more we trade, and you know, the more uh, um, the more trading is free, and and we have open and fair markets the more his country and his people are going to prosper. Well, I mean, he was a direct uh, benefit of the free market in terms of the weapons trade. Exactly. If he wasn't trading, if he wasn't um, trading for the better military technology at the time from the 15th century um, Portuguese. Right. Exactly. He would have been rendered ineffective. And I mean, he would have certainly not have had the advantage that he had during these wars. Mm-hmm. Oh, not not even close. Now, less libertarian things that he did, though, he set up central administrations. He did a lot of currency regulation, but he also built roads and bridges to connect his provinces. And this also consequently was a military thing because it allowed him to move his troops around easier to conquer others. Um, so that was super interesting. He well, I tra- mean, road building a lot of times, these this, this older... Um, Building roads in these societies always relates to getting information from one place to another as fast as possible in order right. to um, increase the size and scope of like what areas you control. Because if you can't get information out of somewhere, then technically it's the boondocks. You know what I mean? Right. So mm-hmm. it's much more difficult to um, claim sovereignty over that area without like a road network to get a messenger in there to, to go there and say, I'm speaking on behalf of the king. You owe us 10 goats and 15 shillings. Like, you know. Yep. Yep. Uh, he, he also did a bunch of cultural things too. Like uh, he built beautiful gardens and castles and shit. And he basically set up, you know, major parts of the Japanese tea ceremony, which is like, I, I would argue is part of, you know, Jap- the Japanese identity is this you know famous Japanese tea ceremony? That is it. We nailed it, Danny. Yep. We nailed it. We got we it. Nailed Japanese nationalism. Tea, tea ceremonies. Tea ceremony. Tea party. Tea ceremonies. Yep. That's I mean, they really the do state. like their tea ceremonies. To be honest, that's but how the state was formed. This is this, is a, right this is a fair. This is a, that's a fair assertion. They love their tea ceremonies. I think you broke the case. You ever see my cousin Vinny? <laughs> yeah. The other, our last episode, I, my girlfriend was watching uh, my cousin Vitty in the other room while we mm-hmm. were playing it. So it's in my, we, all, we were podcasting and I was like listening still to it. <laughs> I love the part where he's like, he's like, honey, you broke the case. You have the picture. <laughs> Me in the shower. <laughs> That's this? it. You broke the case. It's the tea ceremony. It's the tea ceremonies. <laughs> That's what the, uh, what they were yelling during uh, kamikaze missions. Yeah. Um, Japanese tea. Um, sorry. That no, it's just... all right. <laughs> to, to kind of wrap up on, on Nobunaga, though, like just to, just to end on him, because I, I, I focused the most on him because I found him the most interesting and I, th- I found him the most transformative, but we have some other people to look at, too. Ending on Nobunaga, he made Japan an open state to the outside world, right? And so you could argue that the modernization of Japan and the formation of uh, Japanese nationalism was influenced by Western culture 
by Western um, places like like England or like Portugal, things like that, because of how open Nobunaga made Japan, and because of the influences that he drew from outside. I mean, for God's sakes, he he let Christians in, <laughs> you know, and he set up the the first Jesuit missionaries in Christian churches. He never himself converted, but still. Um, but the the thing is that you know, from the very beginning, well, he should have. Go ahead. <laughs> he should have. He should have, right? <laughs> he should have. He should have just converted right there. <laughs> that would have um, done it in. You know, they would have just been, done. Um, I mean, from the very beginning, he was working with the Portuguese to get guns and other armaments, with help, which helped him rise to power. But even after he came to power, he continued this pattern of of like open free trade and like modernization by absorbing the best elements of of outside red, specifically Western. Um, you know, culture. So, in a way, Nobunaga is kind of uh, the precursor uh, to Meijing Japan, kind Meijing of. government, who is adopting kind of. adopting all these things, not from China, but from the, from West. the West, from the West, exactly. But he he makes the argument. I guess Nobunaga. It might be a good argument for saying that Japanese nationalism was a product of diffusion. No, yeah, that's a good point. Right. That's one back. argument. Well, I think we should put a pin on that and go over some of these other uh, shogunates because I think we'll have some contradicting um, times in Japanese history that I think I think you can argue. Obviously, it's a combination of all these things together, and it's like kind of defining why somebody is crazy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or why somebody is just like a certain way, or why somebody is a sociopath. People don't know what is in someone's brain i'm not i'm not referring to japan japanese people's sociopaths i'm just saying like these are questions where you don't really know why people act it's like you know we don't know the question of nature versus nurture type of thing right um but like was um, japanese nationalism nature or nurture in this case you know yeah Um, well let's look at uh let's look at uh, another guy uh toyotomi hideyoshi who i'll call hideyoshi um he was probably known as the second great unifier of Japan during the Sengoku period. Um, he was your typical rags to riches story. Um, he's actually a product of Nobunaga's, um, you know, transformative, you know, period because he started off as a peasant um, and he eventually rose to become his successor. So one way that uh, helped Hideyoshi uh, during the Nobunaga reign was his negotiation skills. So he was actually able to. Um, get a lot of warlords to come over to the Nobunaga, Nobunaga camp, um, oftentimes with just straight up bribing them. Um, but this skill was super useful uh, for him in a way to help him consolidate, to help Nobunaga consolidate power, but also it would help prove himself useful. Uh, and ultimately when he rose to power, it was useful for himself as well. Uh, so eventually Nobunaga's, um, Nobunaga and his eldest son, they were both assassinated. So go figure. We were talking about this a minute ago. You know, they got, they got murked. Government by assassination. Exactly. Right. Uh, and Hideyoshi here, he was super loyal to Nobunaga because again, he came from nothing and Nobunaga gave him a chance and he rose to power. Right. So Hideyoshi wanted to get revenge and which he ultimately did, uh, by defeating uh, all of Nobunaga's enemies uh, and reunifying Japan. <laughs> but he used this victory uh, to secure power for himself. Well, why not? He did the work. Um, while he was in power, 
Hideyoshi changed Japanese society in many ways. Uh, so he's kind of forming somewhat different ideas of a Japanese identity. Uh, so he imposed a rigid class structure, uh, which greatly affected both the peasants and the warrior classes. He said, he basically said, all peasants have to be disarmed from now on, which now I'm thinking back on it uh, is kind of hypocritical because he was a peasant. But yeah, just something I just thought of right now. <laughs> um, so fucking all, liberals. Fucking liberals. He took fucking he, this. Liberals. This guy's total typical liberal. He took all the guns away, right? Uh, and 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 this helped him to strengthen his monopoly on power, and it also allowed the samurai cl- class to basically squat in castle towns during times of peace, which created a clear power structure that was like this elite class over the you know um, the regular class, and this was actually maintained throughout the Edo period, right? This like strong, firm, rigid class structure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is definitely a huge characteristic of the Edo period in Tokugawa, Japan, that this very rigid class structure that is doesn't really work with an Well, I mean it worked for like 300 years. <laughs> it worked. You know? Like, no, it, yeah. It doesn't work well now. No. No, not at all. It doesn't work well now, but um no, not not anymore. But but it worked for three hundred years, and and Hideyoshi is is a large reason why th- this was a thing. He also did this thing where he was surveying land, you know, dead, taking taking account of all the land, and also he performed a census to count all the people, and he did this so that he um, basically once he did the census and he figured out who was who and where did they live, he restricted people's movement inside of the inside of Japan. Right, and he said, "All right, if you uh, are in the you know Okinawa prefecture, you live there, and that's where you live, and you can't go anywhere else unless you get special permission from the central government." And it was kind of tyrannical in in many ways, but his um, his like uh, uh, moral justification for this was to crack down on roaming bandits, which were which were a really big problem. Um, so it, the idea was, if you're not allowed to have free range of motion. And the only people that are moving around are bandits, so we are able to identify them easier and crush them. That was the that was the logic behind it. But really, honestly, I think it was more about taxation. You know, if you didn't move around a lot, we knew where you were, we knew who you were, we know where you are, so I can tax you. I can tax you appropriately. Yeah, it's a lot easier to tax somebody when they're just uh, when they're in place. <laughs> they're in, they're in place and they're. Uh... It's it's way easier to tax somebody who's like has a stable job and in place. There's not a lot of movement. Right. Very easy to has their paperwork on time. Yeah, exactly. It always it's, files. It, I mean, early. A lot of the shit was pretty repressive um, from uh, Hideyoshi, but but some of it was pretty progressive. Uh, he effectively ended the practice of slave labor after he built Osaka Castle. Did he use slaves to build Osaka Castle? He did. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> did he? Um, he? He ended the practice of slavery after using slavery all of his life, but <laughs> at least he ended it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he technically didn't end it in- entirely, so like indentured servitude was still a thing, which is different from slavery, but it's pretty damn close. Uh, and also, if you were like a prisoner, basically they can use you as a slave. 
Um, but but I like mean, just that's what we have here. Like ownership U- of people just by the US we of... do the same thing with prison with with like in California yeah. how how prisoners fight firefighters and, and exactly the yeah. license plates. Yeah. Yeah. So so you know, we, we got labor. the idea from Hideyoshi Toyotomi. <laughs> um but yeah, he ended the practice of slave labor. He also, um, this was pretty progressive uh, for the time, at least. Uh, he ba- he had these pal- policies set up to balance the power of the local daimyos. Because remember, in the periods before him, uh, there was all these like local warlords that were vying to for power, right? And so what he did was he spread out and diversified the power balance between all of these uh, local warlords to help secure more stability in the Japanese nation state, basically spreading the wealth and the power around more equitably so that we can have more stability. And that is very progressive, right? Um, and he, this this was, you know, held up for a while until he got his ass spanked in the Battle of Sekigahara by Tokugawa. But d- d- different story for, for later. Um, he also had a hard-on about tea ceremonies like Nobunaga. <laughs> He was he was big on the tea ceremonies. Um, I, I think most importantly about Hideyoshi was some, something that that was would fuel Japanese imperialism, um, which is I think we can make the argument that it is part of the national identity of Japan. You know, probably not part of it that they want to talk a lot about, but it definitely is a part of Japanese national identity, imperialism. And uh, basically, towards the end of Hideyoshi's life, he wanted to solidify a legacy for himself. And to do so, he basically wanted to act on Nobunaga's dream of conquering China. So Nobunaga had these like, like I, grand ideas. He was like, well, I got all of Japan. I want to go over to China and just spank them too, right? Um, and uh, basically, he was in contact with Korea. Uh, Hideyoshi was in contact with Korea for many years and he was trying to broker safe passage through Korea to get to Manchuria, right? Um, but the eventually the Koreans just were like, nah. The reason why they said no was because they knew that if they allowed a safe passage of a Japanese forces through Korea, that the the Ming dynasty, the Ming Chinese forces would march into Korea to prevent the Japanese from getting into the Chinese mainland. And they weren't trying to have their fucking home be like the battleground between these two powers. Um, and this actually pissed off Hideyoshi so much that he decided to invade Korea. <laughs> um, and he, he did good in the beginning, actually. Uh, in the first four months, he occupied a lot of Korea. Uh, and he you know, had basically a direct road into Manchuria. But it didn't last forever, and eventually he got spanked by what was the last limbs of the Korean Navy. This dude, Admiral Yi Sun Sin, basically destroyed the entire Japanese fleet, which made it impossible for them to resupply their forces in Pyongyang. Um, but this is kind of like the the bits where we can make the argument that Japanese imperialism started here, right? The idea of like we're good enough to move beyond our borders. And, and we're no longer, you know, uh, absorbing the cultures of others. We're now, we're now imposing upon others. 
You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Well, on a side note, I wonder if Admiral Yi Sun Sin is a figure in like North Korean history or North Korean like uh, mythology oh, or, or legend. Do you think that he would if he I bet, I was bet he is. Bit based that I don't really know that much about this. So I don't know about like the propaganda that comes in in North Korea or like <laughs> nobody knows. Um, but yeah, no, that's the thing. Nobody knows. Um, but I'm wondering if that is like a figure if you know if he's resupplying forces in pyongyang which is the capital right now of north right. korea right um that's interesting with this you know this constant um obsession with conquering china or conquering <laughs> the mainland has always existed yep in japan or has existed not always existed but has been in the mind of a lot of like key cow- key power players within Japan for a long time. And it's funny to see how that never really left the system or never really left the consciousness of a lot of people until, I mean, it was in their consciousness from the time they invaded China in the 20th century. So... Even before it's, that, as as I pointed yeah. out, I think I think I think even back here for Toyotomi, uh, Hideyoshi Toyotomi, put that idea in the Japanese consciousness. So, let's talk about the the rise of Tok- Tokugawa because we have the largest battle in I guess samurai history that comes up around what the year sixteen oh five or sixteen. I don't know what the exact date. It's like sixteen yep. early sixteen hundreds. You're talking the, about Sekigahara, right? The battle of Sekigahara, where mm-hmm. there's a a battle, something like fifty, like a like a large scale battle. I don't know what the exact numbers are. Um, yeah. I've just seen pictures of it, but um, this is where you see the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate when he when he emerges as like the major plow, power player in in. Um, in the 17th century in Japan. Right, and he was the third major unifier uh, during the Sengoku period. What is interesting is that this is when Japan enters a period of peace. So there's right. a 200 period of peace and isolation. And what Tokigawa is mostly known for is he he ends all that 
like trading free market stuff, Christ, being favorable to Christianity. Right. They end that system where they Go shut on. down the borders. If you are a foreigner and if you come to on Japanese soil, your head's going to be cut off once you hit that soil. Like you're not allowed to be there. And we, we, we talked about this briefly earlier, like the Dutch, the only people that one of the big reasons why they limited trade with the outside world is because of Christian missions that mm -hmm. they thought were meddling too much in Japanese politics. Right. The only the only government or only Western state that they trusted to trade with and they didn't really trust them were the Dutch. And they, they were the they, less the least Christian of the Christian nations. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. The Portuguese were the first major traders with Japan. And they were That's, heavily Catholic. <laughs> yeah, they were very Catholic. And there's a really big massacre. And man, I forget the year of this. I probably should have came prepared for it. But um, where the Japanese, they, they take a ship of, of, uh, of um, I don't remember. I don't remember if they were missionaries or if they were merchants. It might have been. It probably was a combination of both. both right? like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I guess you don't, I guess if you're making a voyage from, Portugal to Japan at that time that takes a couple of months to get there. So right. I'm, that ship, those ships are packed with everyone who wants to go there, which probably includes merchants and and uh, you know preachers of Jesus Christ. And um, the ship is is caught, and everyone is brutally killed and executed on this ship. And there, that was <laughs> yeah. like the first sign of like, hey, we're done with this system. We are yeah. closing our borders. And essentially what Edo Japan becomes, is it Edo or Edo? I just want to make sure that uh, I'm not pronouncing I, I think it in, for in all like the American dorks. English should be Edo, but Edo, Edo would be. Edo? Mm -hmm. right. I'm, going to, I'm going to stick with the American way, Edo. Edo. Edo Japan. Um, so Edo Japan was a, a pseudo-unified pre-modern feudal state where the military class across the country submitted to the Tokugawa shogunate and you know they paid an annual tributes and missions and um, they still had local administrative autonomy but the Tokugawa shogunate was the most powerful of all of these different unifiers over the past you know 200 year period and so interesting to see that 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 the piece that that came out of it was distinctly a result of shutting themselves off from the rest of the world. So kind of almost backtracking on the idea, you know, like is the Jap if the if you were to say that the Japanese national identity started at Tokugawa, then you would say that the national identity is independent of western nations. That nationalism was independent of that and wasn't a part of diffusion. Well, here's what I have to say about Tokugawa, um, because this is a 200-year period of peace. So you see right. a lot of shit like changes within the hierarchy system, where you know these samurai are no longer warrior classes, and they have less to do. They have less to. They need, they, they need to take on new roles because they're not constantly at war. <clears throat> and what something that the Tokugawa shogun did is that they promoted Confucianism. Um, Neo-Confucianism was the official political doctrine because Confucian ideology emphasized hierarchy. And what, why that was important was because Confucian education offered 
moral prestige to that aristocratic society who may have less to do on the battlefield, but now still has a place in like, you know, government politics and things like that. So Mm. it is effectively creating loyalty within that warlord society to the shogunate, shogunate, uh, to the shogunate. Um, So I think those, or at least was a uh, reason why Confucianism was pushed by Tokugawa. Yep. And what's interesting is that they employed Chinese writing. Mm-hmm. Now, just hold on to this thought. At the same time, you have the rise of Tokugawa Japan in China, and this is going to mirror earlier Japanese history. In China, you have the Ming Dynasty falling apart. In 644, the Ming Dynasty officially falls apart. It sounds a lot like back in the year, um, in, in the 7th and 8th century, when the Tang Dynasty fell apart. Right. And then mm-hmm. Japan was like, all right. The We're Japanese, doing our own thing. Right. We're like, okay, these guys are no longer interesting. Um, right. We, don't, we no longer want to uh, really uh, follow their lead. The and Japanese, the ancient Japanese are real fair weather fans to other nations, aren't they? Right. They're only like, you know, they're only really watching you if you're, if you're in the playoffs, basically. Yeah. Once, well, it's, it's interesting because that's another theme that you, that is common. So they, they copy whenever they're um, influenced by a culture that they, um, will start regarding them as decadent once they have like proven their self uh, unworthy. So like the Tang Dynasty, when that disintegrated, they're like, all right, I don't think we're going to be sending missions over to China anymore. They're <laughs> yeah. not, you know, they're falling apart. And then the same thing happens with the Ming Dynasty in 644. And then you see that same pattern of behavior later on in the 20th century when... Um, or in the 19th century, rather, when um, Japan's first military advisors were the French. They were the, the the last samurai, which we spoke about on our Patreon last week. We did a full episode like discussing the, the last samurai and their historical accuracies. That story is kind of based on a French officer rather than an American officer. Mm-hmm. And when Tom Cruise... When France loses to Prussia during the Franco-Prussian War, Japan observes that and they're like, "Okay, these guys are not. Um, why are we copying? Like, like the, we yeah, should be dealing cool with the anymore. Germans. Yeah, you're not cool anymore. We want you know Prussia to be our military advisors. Advisors again. You know they're adopting a lot of those." Uh, Prussian martial qualities into their own society at that time, which is just another element in the pot that you're stewing right now to create this fanatic nationalism that does arise in the 20th century. Ultimately, the story that we're trying to, or the point we're trying to tell in these in these episodes, but um, to to go back on the Ming Dynasty falling apart. In order to identify the moral cause of the Ming's demise, Confucian scholars engaged in something called, um, you know, rereading the old, um, 
classical Confucian texts. And they did that because they wanted to advise contemporary governments on how to avoid the suffer, how to avoid uh, to suffer those same fates. This actually inspires another movement that is interested in studying old Japanese text. And this kind of evolves into this proto-Japanese national movement in the 19th, in the 18th century Japan. And what it's what the primary goal of this movement is 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 discovering what is Japan. So, like what we're doing right now, what this podcast is, like what is, what is this thing? So this intellectual movement emerges under in the Tokyo during the time of the Tokugawa shogunate. It's not endorsed by the Tokugawa shogunate. It's just honestly happens. at odds with Confucian principles, mm-hmm. but it merges around this time in discovering Japanese uh, identity. And the easiest way or um, the what you can compare this to is, is Western Romanticism that emerges in, in the 19th century, like the Western Romanticism that emerges... Uh, with really idealizing the past, with really like looking like, oh man, like we were so great back in the day. Right. We had such honor and virtues and, you know, those times and back in, you know, whatever the hell empire that we say claimed mm-hmm. to exist at one period or another or whatever the hell kingdom we, when we say claim to exist at one period of time, right. we need to capture the essence and spirit of those societies and spread them to our civilian population. So that was kind of like the essence of this movement founded by Maturi Norinaga, who is a, uh, he's like kind of like the main, the founder of this, of this uh, so-called uh, proto-nationalist movement. And what they engage in is that th- these Japanese scholars, uh, they start to see the foreign influence in old Japanese writings as bad. Mm. So, they try to purge foreign influence out of old Japanese texts. So they're literally going through these old documents because think about it, everything's written in Chinese back then. Right. This is before the Japanese phonetic language was out. So they're looking and they're trying to like- And they're reading the, the subjectively, Kojiki. Right, the, like the ancient books, the Kojiki, yeah. which was written in Chinese, right? Yeah, so they're like subjectively like, this is too Chinese sounding, they're pulling this out. This is too, no, that's not something Japanese. They're like kind of constructing what, what is the, what is Japan narrative? It like, they're, they're trying to create this movement by um, excising the foreign influence. Yeah. Which is all, which is impossible, which is an impossible task to do right. at that time right. because the found the, 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 the first court, the first court, gov- the first court governments were his too heavily inspired by China um, to not have, to, to be able to purge that and separate the two. Like, yeah, there is a time period in Japanese history, as we discussed in two episodes ago in the, in the Origins of Japanese Feudalism episode, where there was this very thriving Japanese culture that um, that existed, like this court culture that kind of resembled like uh, like the French court politics before the French Revolution, like very hoity-toity and um, um, obsessed with like um, obsessed with like cultural cultural um, 
improvements and things mm -hmm. like that. However, what their ar argument was, was Japan in antiquity was a utopian society. Right. Like it was a perfect, it was a perfect society. And According this state that. of, yeah. And this state of bliss was lost because of the contamination of Chinese and Korean or, you know, any other foreign, foreign uh, influence at those times. Mm -hmm. So that state of bliss was, was ruined. However, it was still possible to recover those pristine conditions enjoyed by, by the ancient Japanese. Therefore, they had to, you know, pick and choose what they felt was Japanese. I don't know what is the process of doing that or how that process works and creating a national narrative um, and picking and choosing what you think is like uniquely Japanese. Like, oh, that's something that Japanese would say. Oh, that's something that Chinese would say. We should take that out of the, the, the books. But it's interesting that these movements were created. And I think the greater context of that is that this was, you know, we wouldn't say Confucianism inspired this, but this was, you could see that it was a consequence of Confucianism due to Confucian, you know, the Confucian model of looking at ancient texts to kind of warn future governments of things that they should avoid doing. However, um, it began to become at odds with Confucianism because ultimately Confucianism was a foreign influence in China. Um, but it's so hard, just going back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, it's, it's really difficult to kind of nail this stuff down and to, and create, and really create like a perfect stew or a perfect like formula of like what created a specific culture. There's just so many factors and there's so many different, um, circumstances that involve that ultimately lead to you know what is inserted into uh nationalism or what's inserted into you know the educational material uh endorsed by a nation state to um to get everyone on the same page so we can live in the same country and then want to die for that same country it, it's it's so hard to just like pick and choose those factors I don't know. Would you agree on that? Like, are you in the same predicament that I am? Because, you know, I feel I'm always in this, I'm in like this kind of weird situation. And I think a lot of people get this is like, the more you learn about things, the more you learn you about know. a subject, yeah. the more you learn about the, the more you learn about how much you don't know about that subject. Mm -hmm. And I find that happening to me a lot. Yeah, dude. Totally. You know, you know you would think that like reading some of these things would like help you to like answer some of these questions and like coming back to one of the early questions, you know, that you asked, you know, while we were recording this, you know, do we think that nationalism was uniquely a European phenomenon or, you know, was it organic within uh, uh, Japan or, you know, uh, the other question where, you know, you kind of ask about what's the foundation of the Japanese national consciousness and we dive into all of these examples and we're getting sometimes contradictory <laughs> like mixed messages you know it's like we like we're barely scratching the surface here and it's like so hard to to have a definitive conclusion it's kind of both 
it yeah it is it is and i think where i'm at at this point i think that it's a so japanese nationalism was a combination that like the spirit of japanese nationalism was always existed however the western template of using that consciousness to create a state like to create an actual state was used during the Meijing period like that's kind of where i'm at right there yeah, it was, it was like, like they a were useful able... synthesis you know it's like yeah. oh these two things work well together you know so i guess going back to the theories of multiple modernity um like can nationalism or modernity ultimately exist um without like all of the factors that we associate with a modern country like and when i say like modernity it usually means some type of like either constitution or uh, representative government um, even if it's a monarchy like mm -hmm. you know these monarchies in the 19th century and 20th century they still had some form of parliamentary governments like even like the most kind of oppressive ones did like yeah um they would have their parliaments and they'd have some type of power there, there'd be some barter or some kind of mutual agreement between the monarchy and like the civilian population like that they would um have their right to vote in certain people and right. have different powers and regulations have certain say across in, in what goes on yeah you know that's a part of modernity another the the um Obviously, the industrialization is a 100%. huge part of it. Yep. But I think the biggest factor is the mass education, you know, is mm -hmm. the ability to mass communicate a common message to everyone and, right. and to have them think about the same way. Because, man, I bet if I asked every single person who's listening to this podcast, would you die for this country? I think I would get like a 95% chance yes. Like, like I would probably say yes. You know, what, like would you die like for this country? Whatever country you might be from. Yeah. Know? Would you die for would you die for America? Would you die for Australia? Would you die for Canada? Would you die well, you're not gonna die for Canada. You're gonna <laughs> die. <laughs> hey, oh uh, I think I'll just move to America, eh? <laughs> think hey, I'll just think I'll just move down to the States, eh? I'm so sorry, but I don't want to oh, die for Canada. Canada. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think okay, you could take us. You could just take my my maple farm. Sorry, Canada. we just get some ice rings. We'll just go to Minnesota. <laughs> it's cold there, right? We like it cold. I don't know. I think it's a terrible Canadian accent, right? Yeah, you, you slipped into Midwestern <laughs> pretty quickly. What's that? You slipped into Midwestern pretty easily. I think I yeah. I think I went too into like um, Minnesota, Minnesota accent. Minnesota. You know why? Because I was fucking watching clips of Fargo the other day. Oh, like God. It was not the movie, but the clips of Fargo. Mm -hmm. Where's my daughter? <laughs> Where's my daughter? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> the dad. Give me back my daughter. Um, fuck, man. That's not the intelligent way I wanted to uh, end that, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. I'm not an intelligent man, as you clearly could probably see by listening or probably observe by listening to this show you know not 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 the uh brain not a brain like sam harris <laughs> or jordan peterson <laughs> yeah we're not the brainy type who has some like great way to bring this back and just like oh it all made sense 
Everything that, all the nonsense that he was saying for the past hour and a half, he tied it up in a nice little bow. Usually mine's like, just... Well, that's all I know. <laughs> that's everything I know. I, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, you uh, tell me. <laughs> you, you tell me. I, I'm just... I'm just I saying. just read the shit. I just read the shit and basically summarize it and say like, holy fuck, give commentary. I'm a third... We're third party sources of information. Yep. Um, we're we're like we're like we're like living spark notes. Yeah, <laughs> living spark notes with some occasional jokes that you may or may not find funny. Well, All I right, bro historians. Funny. I hope you find it funny. <laughs> bro, bro historians. Um, <laughs> oh, why don't we denigrate our podcast like this at the end of it? We're just like, yeah, we're fucking idiots. <laughs> Do you have anything else to say? I am. Uh, no I man, I'm I'm wiped, going. and I think we we um we we covered a, a ton. Um, maybe on the next go, we'll talk more specifically about you know gunboat diplomacy or 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 the rise of the Meiji Restoration or something like that. Yeah, um, we are going to be going into the final nationalization processes, where we uh, further talk about modernity in Japan, and we talk further into the. Uh, rise of fanatic Japanese nationalism, which leads to, uh, can you say, some friction between Sino and Japanese relationships? Ha ha ha. Indubitably. Um, Indubitably. (laughs) What does that word even mean? Indubitably. Oh, Reginald, I indubitably disagree with you. All right, guys. Um, thanks again for listening to another episode. Um, I'm sure things got weird on this one, but I mean, that's what you should expect if you continue to listen to this show uh, for things to uh, be continuously weird. Um, but I hope you enjoy it. And at the very least, um, you're entertained and you've learned maybe something. Um, make sure if you like this show, rate and review the podcast. If you're listening to Apple, it is very appreciate. It's very much appreciated when you uh, rate and review the podcast. Again, it is a number. It is the number one way to help us continue to grow this show is to rate and review. If you guys aren't listening on Apple, to share this, share our podcast on whatever social media outlet, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Tell a friend. That's probably the best way. Word of mouth. Say, hey, buddy, I have a. I have these two guys who talk about history. Um, on a podcast forum and uh, you should listen to them as well. And then we are putting more effort into our Patreon. We've released uh, three new episodes, uh, three supplementary episodes on this topic, including uh, episodes on the, um, the influence on China, on Japan. Um, and then as well as a uh, breakdown of the last samurai on our Patreon, um, which we are continuing fun, to, by the way, which is a lot of fun. So we are releasing um, bonus episodes on our Patreon, and we are putting them. Um, uh, we are giving you these episodes uh, that we record um, early. But we're providing early access. So join us on our Patreon at Bro History, um, and then uh, that's pretty much it. Um, I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful day and a wonderful week. If you're listening to this on Sunday. And uh, Danny, have anything to add? Oh, man. Peace. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week and uh, have a wonderful rest of your evening or day. Or day. Peace.
We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.